0: Before we begin this episode of How Was It Really?, you should know that the following conversation was recorded just before any of us had heard of a sneaky virus called SARS CoV 2. At the time, like many people, we knew about Ebola, SARS, MERS, H1N1, and all the rest. We were aware that scientists had been warning about the likelihood of a global pandemic for decades but we were not ready for COVID-19. You may be surprised to learn that in some ways 17th century Italians were better prepared for an epidemic than we were in 2020. You may be even more surprised by how similar our response to COVID-19 has been and continues to be to the way Florentines dealt with plague. Then, as now, plague brought about the best and worst in people. And just as COVID-19 taught 21st century Australians, rampant infection reminded Florentines that the best way to smash epidemic disease is for people to help each other. That caring for everyone beats narrow self-interest every time. I hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: Hi and welcome to another episode of How Was It Really, the podcast from Sydney University History Department that pulls history apart to see how it works. I'm Sophie Loy Wilson, a historian in the History Department at Sydney University and today my usual co-host Dr Nick Eckstein, also a historian in the History Department here at Sydney, is my guest on the show And I'm delighted that we'll be discussing his work today. Hi, Nick.
2: Hi, Sophie. It's great to be here.
1: So I'm very happy to put my usual co-anchor in the position of guest on the show. Now, I'll say more about Nick in a minute. But first, as always, on how was it really, we have a question that we set out to answer on the show. This week's question, how bad did Florence smell in 1630?
2: Well, that's actually a very serious question. It sounds like the setup for a tagline or a punchline, but we're going to try to give it a serious answer.
1: Yeah. And you'll see there's some some surprising answers we're going to explore uh, today. So now I'm very happy to properly introduce my colleague, Nick Eckstein, who is here to help us answer this question today. Associate Professor Nick Eckstein is a historian of the social and cultural history of late medieval Renaissance and early modern Italy, especially Florence. But on top of this, Nick is also a leading historian of urban and neighbourhood history, of daily life and urban culture, and he is also a historian of popular religion. All these fascinating specialties you'll hear come together when he discusses his work with us in a minute. In addition to a long string of important articles, he's published several landmark books. Most recently in this vein it is his beautifully realised book, Painted Glories, the Brancacci Chapel in Renaissance Florence, which was published by Yale University Press in 2014. Now, as you know, Nick, we've invited you in to talk about your article, Florence on foot, an eye level mapping of the early modern city in a time of plague. And this was published in the journal of Renaissance studies in 2015. And it's available on the website for this podcast. Now, before we dive into this piece, there's a question we ask all of our colleagues and fellow historians on this show. Nick, why did you become a historian?
2: Well, this one's got a very personal answer uh, and there are two strands to it. The first one I think is that my father was a Holocaust survivor Mm. and came to Australia by a series of historical accidents that he later thought were the greatest stroke of luck of his life. And he was an academic, and he was interested in history, and I was interested in history, I think because of those forces that brought him to Australia. And in another sense, related, my parents took me and my brother in 1975 on a long holiday to Europe, during which we spent three weeks in Italy, including a week in Florence. And they were both teachers, and my mother was a particularly talented teacher, and she gave us a sort of guided tour of late medieval and Renaissance Tuscany that I have never forgotten. So I think the damage was done there. And then the subject was taught brilliantly at Monash University in the late 70s. And it just sort of went from there. So um, it was almost the absence of a decision. I just kept on doing what I was enjoying.
1: So you walk the city as a young boy. Yes, I did. With your mother as your guide. Yep. And now you walk the city as a historian.
2: And have actually taken my own children there. And I've also taken lots of groups of students over the year as well. So walking, which, figures in this article and in this project is actually an important way that I have come to terms with the city today in the 20th and 21st centuries as well.
1: So today I've asked Nick to talk about his recent article, Florence on foot, an eye level mapping of an early modern city in a time of plague. So Nick, take us into um, this moment in uh, plague-ridden Florence that you write about. What's happening at this time of plague in the city?
2: All right, the article takes place in August 1630. Mm. And for most of that year, Florentine governors, the population in general, but particularly the people in charge, have been looking ever more apprehensively to the north because we're in the middle of the 30 Years' War and there are battles being fought north of the Alps. Italian soldiers, as well as other nationalities, uh, are fighting dreadful battles. And as these soldiers filter into Italy, one of the things they bring into the peninsula with them is plague. So from about late 1629 and in the early months of 1630, the Florentine governors, and in particular the health officers, because there's a permanent office of health in Florence, are watching as city after city reports falling victim to plague, and they watch it coming closer. It's like one of those wartime maps where you see a dark smudge representing the enemy spreading over the territory. They can see plague coming ever closer in that kind of way. And so as fear rises, they begin to worry that the disease is going to run in the city. Pardon me, that the, the disease is going to arrive in the city. And so they decide to take advanced preventative measures. And that means putting to work their ideas of epidemiology and how they would control disease. And that's what leads us into the streets in a very peculiar kind of a way. Because what these people believe is that disease is spread by invisible particles that spread in clouds that you can't see. The invisible particles they think can attach themselves to objects, to people, to clothing. They think they can penetrate the skin The one sign you have of this kind of miasma, as they call it, arriving is smell. They are therefore terrified of bad smells. And so in August 1630, the government orders these, uh, a group of aristocratic gentlemen who belong to a religious society to go into the streets and do a survey looking for smells because they think if they can locate smells, they can find where plague and infection are likely to arise. And that's what leads them into the streets.
1: Now, this is a remarkable response. So it seems to me that um, the governors of, of Florence um, must have had uh, quite a well-developed system of sanitation or a, quite an organized approach to this particular crisis. It strikes me as very, very organized. So there's obviously a larger context for this kind of this kind of management of disease and management of sanitation. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, you're, you're right to say that they, they are organised, they are extraordinarily sophisticated. They are wrong about the causes of the de- disease, of course, mm. but they are, they are not illogical. Yeah they do notice that disease is contagious. They notice that it spreads from person to person. Of course, they're right about that. They just don't know about microbes and viruses Mm. and bacteria in the way that we do today. But the effects that they see are real and their reactions to prevent those effects are logical. So they always resort to surveys and Florentines and urbanites in this period in general on the Italian peninsula are like this. Uh, They can't see something without wanting to survey it. So I've been interested for a long time in things like tax records, which sounds tremendously boring, Um, other sorts of lists by which they examine who lives where in the city, and there are lots and lots of these things over hundreds of years. So what they do is fall back on an old familiar habit. We'll survey the city, and in this case, try to look for the conditions that are likely to produce plague. I mentioned before that they are interested in smells or rather afraid of them, and therefore are forced to go looking for the thing that they fear most. Mm. And not surprisingly, the worst smells and the filth that creates smells, dirt being the other thing that they they look for, occur in poor neighbourhoods of the city. This is hardly surprising, because poor people live in bad housing, cramped circumstances. They're often, by today's standards, hygienically unfit to live in, we would say. So they end up doing this survey through every street, but concentrating on poverty. So this ends up not being a census. It's not reliable for statistical analysis of the population. What it tells you about is a certain group in society, and that is poor people, particularly poor women, because women in this society are usually among the most poor. Mm. If there's a crisis, they will suffer first. They suffer worst, uh, and they die often in greater numbers. Women, children, uh, the poor in general, these are the people who emerge in the documents that they then produce because what these people do in August 1630 is create a written survey that turns into a kind of map of poverty at the time and of potential plague.
1: So this is fascinating because you are a historian of urban culture and you mention in the article that um, this particular source, the visitor
2: Hmm.
1: is well known to historians of the plague in Florence but wasn't necessarily used by urban historians to understand uh, poverty or everyday life.
2: Well the survey is a bit of a mess actually so when you read it you can see why people haven't spent a huge amount of time on it because it consists of about a hundred pages um that's a hundred folios so front and back so about 200 pages in all and it's a messy list of households in a variety of different hands, and it's repetitious. So you get the names of householders uh, in, a, in a list form. Then there are a couple of columns, one of which lists cesspits and the other lists mattresses. And so you look at this and you think, okay, this is a, an interesting document as far as it goes, but it's the same information for page after page after page. And if you are looking at it in terms of plagues, certainly it's interesting. In fact, it surprised me that nobody really had used it in in a systematic way. Um, Maybe it's because it tells you what you think you already know, which is that they're afraid of smells and filth, therefore they go looking for it, end of story. And once you've got that message on the first page, perhaps you don't have to look any further. Mm. As you say, I came at it though for a different reason. As an urban historian, I'm interested in urban surveys. So I thought, I would like to look at this to ask what it can tell us, not about plague, although you can't ignore the plague because that's the context. I wanted to know what we learn about how they perceive neighborhoods Mm. and streets and things like that. And I wasn't sure how much mileage there would be in this when I began. I discovered in fact, you can push it a very long way indeed. And so we do learn something very particular about how people move through streets. In a sense, one was able to look through the eyes of the surveyors at the people around them as they went from door to door, because that, as you know, is a very important aspect of the how, how this is put together.
1: And this brings us to this intriguing organization, the devotional co-fraternity dedicated to the Archangel Michael. And these are the people tasked with carrying out the Visitar. Clearly a rather dangerous and challenging task, as you say. So who were these upper-class and what were their motivations?
2: Okay. If you are a Florentine of any standing, if, you have, if you're anything more than a pauper, uh, if you are active in social and religious life in this period, you belong to a thing called a confraternity, which is an organisation of ordinary people, therefore not priests, lay people, uh, who gather together usually for the purposes of group prayer. This is, the Archangel Michael is one of those societies. The Confraternity of Archangel Michael, therefore, is a very aristocratic version of these. These are upper-class gentlemen, you could say, most of them very, very wealthy. And they, like members of other confraternities, belong because group prayer is more powerful than individual prayer. This is about saving your souls. One of the other things these confraternities typically do, though, is minister to the poor. So they will do acts of mercy, and they will look after various different constituencies. They might be widows, they might be sick people, they might be the poor. In this case, the Archangel Michael seems to have a long history of, in fact, doing these kinds of surveys right back to the 15th century. It could be earlier, but the sources don't really stretch earlier than the 1490s, but we know that early. They are going out regularly into the streets looking for poor people, and it seems to me that they are often doing this in the context of plague. So as far as one can tell, there's no proof, it seems to me they are chosen in 1630 because they've got a long history as, as it were, experts in looking at the city to find out where poverty is and relating it to the potential for plague. So if you're going to get a group to do this, you get the Archangel Michael in. And I think that's why the health officials turn to them in this moment of crisis. The other thing to be said about this, and here's the tension that you've already sort of nodded to, they're afraid to do this, but they do it anyway. So there are a couple of reasons for that. If plague is an existential threat to the entire population, you need to deal with it. And so somebody has to do this job. Secondly, it's classically what a confraternity would do, which is to go out and help the poor. In this case, however, the stakes are very high. You're afraid to get near the poor because of these miasmas you think will be transpiring off them. You'll be afraid to go into their houses. They do this, but they're they're afraid to. You're afraid to go into into the houses because of the dirt, the filth, uh, in many cases, the leaky sewage uh, sewage and all those sorts of things that you expect to encounter. So, one thing, one visual I can put in your mind is to tell you that they dress in a particular way to do this task. The confraternal members dress in long coats which have got a very shiny surface on the outside because they think the miasma will fall away if it hits their coats. They wear great big hats with glasses with thick lenses to prevent the miasmas coming through into their eyeballs. And they wear great big long beaks on their faces, masks that are like carnival masks, which they stuff with uh, rags that have been impregnated with um, herbs and various other pleasant smelling agents. And this is to stop them inhaling miasmas. So they are frightening to look at. But their intention, of course, is charitable. And it's designed to help the city by identifying potential causes of disease.
0: You are listening to How Was It Really?
1: This is absolutely incredible, Nick, and I'm reminded of um, images of nuclear war or you indeed know, scientists in the nuclear age, you know, walking into radiation clouds, you know, and even today when we look at people at crime scenes dressed um, in um, outfits to protect themselves.
2: That's an excellent comparison.
1: I mean, this is scary stuff mm-hmm. to, to walk into what you think. Is a miasma that might kill you and it's it's such an incredible context for this archive that you look at to be created so this archive is incredibly detailed and in your article you take apart just how um, the brotherhood um, goes about recording what they see so tell us a little bit more about what they see and how they record
2: it i might take the first second question first Normally when you read a list of people who live in the city, it'll be ordered by some familiar principle. So it might be by um, gender. It might be by class. It might be by neighbourhood. And they don't do any of those things. One of the first things I noticed in reading this boring list, which gradually became less boring, was that the names are arranged in the order that these people encountered the householders. So what you have is a map of movement. They will announce that they are at the corner of a particular street and then they will say, in the first house on the right, we meet so-and-so. In the next house on the right, we met a weaver and his children. In the next house, we met a widow living in desperate circumstances with her young daughters. And in each place that they visit, they describe what they found. And it will be something like an exploding cesspit. Uh, It might be a drain that is leaking into the courtyard, throwing out powerful odors, uh, which worries them, of course. In almost every house they will find that there is inadequate bedding so that there will be straw mattresses which are filthy and need to be replaced. In fact, their job as charged by the health officials is to identify where there is filthy bedding or other refuse, to remove the refuse, to replace the mattresses and they're given replacements which are paid for by by the health officials and to identify where there are leaky cesspits, um, where you've got, they call them black wells, pozzi neri, um, and they still use that expression today in modern Italy. A pozzo nero is the cesspit where your sewage goes down the pipes in an apartment. So they are looking for leaking sewage at every point, and they make lists. And you do it street by street, house by household by household, uh, person by person. So you have this very strange and unusual experience for a setting that is so many hundreds of years ago. We don't normally get to this level and we don't normally have this close encounter with the lower classes. You have the sensation in reading this document of actually, in a funny way, meeting the people who occupy these places. And they are more humble than the kinds of people who are usually described in documents of this period. So rather than looking at a familiar map, which is a bird's eye view and takes in the city all at once and is usually idealized, usually made to look beautiful because the idea is to impress other people. This one is horizontal, takes place at ground level and takes place by walking. So the city is brought into existence as you read down the page, one household at a time.
1: So it's hard to emphasise just how much intriguing human detail makes its way into this this document um you mentioned uh the conditions so the cesspits the garbage the smells the detailed description of course because of the miasma of the smells but we also get um the names of these poor people don't Mm. we and we get their professions that's right and we get who they lived with so can you tell us a little bit about some of the examples um of household life that get recorded you
2: don't get daily rhythms, you get circumstances. So there is one uh, case where I think, if you read between the lines, you have a mixture of emotions on behalf of the confraternity brothers. Uh, these are very, very brief descriptions. At most they run to a line or two. You'll get a small paragraph in a modern, on a modern page and modern typeset out of this. No longer than a short paragraph, but they speak volumes. And there are some instances, as I say, where you can hear the conflicted emotions in the description. You'll have apprehension, obviously, because they're afraid to be there, but also shock and sympathy. Shock, I think, because while they're familiar with their city in a detailed sense, they are not necessarily always walking into these hovels, which is what they are in many cases, uh, on a regular basis. They're doing it in a moment of crisis. And so they will find, for instance, The uh, example of a tradesman who has taken in a young person off the street uh, who is, and he is sleeping on the floor in his own place already, but he's taken somebody off the street. There is the case of a widow who lives with uh, her offspring and a daughter so poor that she is described as being half naked at home. One might expect aristocratic governments to be lacking in sympathy in some way in this period, this is clearly not the case. They can behave in other ways in a very authoritarian sense, but they don't not care about their poor. Uh, It's clear that they really do. So you meet people in that kind of uh, encounter and you also learn that there are people who sleep on dirt floors, who have filthy bedding. Uh, who are sick, they describe a really affecting case of a woman who's got a species of Qatar, and uh, she can't move from her bed and needs help and so they arrange it for her as much as they are able. So these are little vignettes, little stories, household by household, which put together um, the city, you, I suppose, could say as an accumulation of human stories and experiences, which is another thing that we want to know about but all to frequently can't get at. So it's this moment of crisis that exposes this for us too in a particular way.
1: I was so struck by that case of the the older lady with the guitar. Um, They say that she had a sort of dirty sheet covering filthy bedding, uh, no light in her room. That the attention to detail and the kind of pondering of what human dignity should be or um, the kind of basic necessities that a human being should have in a society is so present um, in this source in a a quite touching way, alongside the shock of this poverty. Now, you take a really interesting approach uh, to the source and you begin to draw maps. Hmm. You're an urban historian and you deal with the visual. You've seen a lot of maps of Florence um, at this time. And you actually use uh, some of the categories um, in in the document, in the visitari to draw up different parts of the city. And as you're doing this, you discover an important methodological issue uh, with ways of using this source, don't you? Yeah. Speak a little bit about that.
2: Well, I, I decided one way of doing this article was to talk about my own progress in coming to terms with the document. And as an urban historian, and particularly historian of neighbourhood, when I hear that a pair of confraternity brothers have been given a sector of the city, and they give you the streets that form the boundaries of this sector, I think, ah, I'll, I can draw that on a map. And so I did a sort of map like a pizza slice or a piece of a jigsaw with firm boundaries within which was the area that they, this pair were going to survey. And there are numerous pairs of these brothers who are each given a sector, and I in first, In the first place, I think I had in mind to do a kind of jigsaw map of those various pieces. But I didn't get very far in before I thought, no, these are not neighbourhoods. These are not the communities that I normally study uh, because they have no existence apart from the survey. These are just areas that the health officials have said they've got to cover. There's no community life in these areas. These are just areas to get surveyed as quickly as possible. So I changed my tack and I began looking at the language in which they actually talk about the people and I discovered confirmation of something that I'd already worked on in another area of my work but I hadn't really concentrated on and that is how people locate themselves in the late medieval and early modern city. And in brief, if we are asked where we live in Australia in the 21st century, we'll usually give a suburb and a street and a number. So. We live at number 87 Smith Street, Haberfield, something like that. They don't think like that. They don't give numbers. They will tell you the street they live in, but they will describe their location in relation to their neighbors, which is why I've called this a prepositional relationship because of the language that they use to talk about where they are. They won't say, I live at number 87. They'll say, I live in the Via del Acqua, the street of, of, of the water and my neighbor next door is a carpenter, and the neighbor behind me is a widow, and the neighbor on the other side is an artisan of some other description, and my first neighbor is actually the street itself. They'll often call these confines, confini. So they actually describe themselves in relation to their neighbors. And if you look at this map, they're doing this again. They say, so-and-so lives up this street next to the church. Uh, So-and-so lives a little bit further up the hill on the other side of the person we've just described and below the monastery and opposite the wool shop. So there's always a series of spatial relationships. And if you start putting these together, you get a kind of lattice of neighbours. And so there is this kind of prepositional reality, which tells you, in fact, that you define yourself not by a bureaucratic formula, but by your spatial relationship, and in fact, your actual personal relationships with people all around you. You exist not as an individual, as we like to think of ourselves, but as the member of a community which is bounded in space. You might not like those people, but you can't escape them. And therefore they are there in the way you define your location. And in fact, I would say they are there in the way you define yourself because before you are anything else, you are the member of a group member of a family in a neighborhood in a larger community. Groups matter more than anything else to these people.
1: So let's return to our question for today's podcast. Nick, how bad did Florence smell in 1630?
2: Well that's the question we began with which we said sounded very frivolous but which had a serious answer. The quick response is to say that Florence by 21st century standards could smell pretty bad. When they say an unusually powerful stench, and you know that they are talking about, another quotation, the stinking guts of the delicatessen stalls being left out in the open. We know that by our standards, it would have smelled absolutely horrendous. The longer and more important response though, rather than just talking about objective smell, if there is such a thing, there probably isn't, is to say that smell is an index in their terms of the potential risk of disease. Because remember, smell is a sign of the presence of these invisible gases that they call miasmas, those particles that can penetrate the skin and kill you. So if you can smell something bad, there may be a miasma there. And that means in the parts of the city that smell worst, there the danger is most intense. And that's where you've got the biggest risk. And overwhelmingly, If you equate smell with space, you're talking about the poor areas of the city, which in this town, this is something we haven't talked about, are in the back streets throughout the entire city. There's not one poor area. There are poor areas in the back streets throughout the entire city. So the presence of smell is something that threatens everybody. So if we're talking about mapping smells, and that's what we really are talking about in the end, we're talking about a map of existential risk. And smell makes them afraid.
1: And that's how it was in Florence in 1630. Remember that you can download this episode of How Was It Really? from our website where you'll find information about Nick's publications and links to the article we've been discussing today. See you next time. How was it really? It's written, recorded and produced by the Department of History at the University of Sydney.